please uh, turn with me to Luke, Luke's Gospel, the New Testament, third book in, fifth chapter, and we'll look at the first 11 verses of this really, really cool passage, really, really wonderful, wonderful passage. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for he... And all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, you've given us your word. Now again, we ask you for your spirit. We need your spirit. And so come and by the presence of your spirit through this, your word, mold us and shape us, give us understanding, help us to see with clarity that you know way more about us than we know about ourselves. And that that is a good thing. So come, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I heard this old uh, Bob Seger song this last week. Bob Seger's from Michigan. I'm from Michigan. He's from Ann Arbor. I went to college in Ann Arbor. It's just a thing we have. And this song reminded me of uh, Peter. Stood there boldly, sweating in the sun. Felt like a million, felt like number one. The height of summer, I'd never felt that strong. Like a rock. I was 18. Didn't have a care. Working for peanuts, not a dime to spare. But I was lean and solid everywhere like a rock. 
We're looking at uh, the life of Peter, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, one of the 12 who would walk with Jesus and be with Jesus for three years, the three years of his earthly ministry, who with Philip and Andrew and Matthew and John and Thomas and the others would listen to Jesus and watch Jesus as he performed miracles and as he taught and as he shaped and molded and then sent these disciples with his gospel into the whole world. We're looking at Peter as a prime example of somebody who needs to be changed and somebody who is changed. And the reason I was struck this week, for obvious reasons, I'm sure to those of you who were here last week, the reason I was struck by the Seeger song is because my guess is that Peter was feeling like a rock. My guess is that Peter is not a whole lot older than the guy envisioned in the Seeger song, a guy who's 18, doesn't have a care, working for peanuts, not a dime to spare. He's lean and mean and solid everywhere. Just a young, young man, fairly young man who works with James and John in a fishing business. The reason you got to think that he was fairly young is because he lived a fairly good long time after the episode that's described here in Luke's gospel. I mean, he did become an apostle. He did write a couple of letters. He did have a pretty pervasive and, and extensive ministry. There was some time that elapsed between the situation and the time when Peter died. But if you were here last week, you'll remember pretty clearly that Peter was anything but a rock. That Peter was anything but Simon, one who listens with the intent to obey. Anybody, someone who is anything but, but solid and dependable and reliable. Peter was unstable and impetuous and impulsive and presumptuous and, and he was a coward. He was a coward who'd rather lie to save his own skin than identify himself with his friend and the one who'd loved him for three years, Jesus. Simon Peter was anything but Simon Peter. The reason we're looking at Peter is because we want to see that Jesus really does, in fact, with power and grace and mercy and relentless kindness, change people. And he changed Peter. And we're doing this because we had looked at those verses in Romans chapter 12 that talk about change, that, that this gospel and this Christian life, these things really are about change. They're about people becoming new They're about people becoming something other than what they are. I think one of the lessons to take from Jesus and Peter's first encounter is that Jesus doesn't call people because of who they are. Jesus calls people because of what Jesus longs for them to become. You will be Simon Peter. You aren't now, but you will be. You will be. And Jesus becomes the author of that change in Peter's life. But as we said last week, the first thing Peter's got to come to terms with is himself. He's got to come to terms with the fact that 
that he really isn't what his name describes. He's neither Simon, someone who hears with the intent to obey, nor is he Peter, someone who is a rock, solid and dependable. He's neither of those things. But it is both of those things that he will become. But The only way he begins to make progress in the direction of what he will become is by being honest about who he is. And, and that's what Jesus begins to do with Peter. He begins to show him who he is, who he really and truly is. And then the second thing we said last week is that having begun to come to terms with himself, who he really is, he's got to come to terms with Jesus and who Jesus is. And that's where we are in this passage. We're at a place where Peter begins to come to terms with who Jesus is as he comes to terms with who he is. Right? I mean, it's there in the passage when Jesus performs this incredible miracle. What is Peter's response to Jesus? They're out there in the boat. Jesus has commandeered this boat and they're out there in the boat. And Jesus performs this miracle and there are all of these fish. And they gather up these fish and the boats begin to sink. Peter sees what has happened and he falls in the boat on his knees before Jesus and says, Would you like to come into business with us? He falls on his knees and says, depart from me. I'm beginning to see who I am. I'm a sinful man. I'm beginning to see who I am. And I'm beginning to understand who you are. And folks, those things always work together. They always work in exchange with each other. It's what John Calvin, one of my dead white European friends, writes about in the first sections of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. True knowledge of self leads to knowledge of God. True knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. And they work, they syncopate, they work side by side, and you see that in Peter's life. Now, very specifically, what is Peter coming to terms with here? I told Barb last night that I had three points. And she said very kindly, why don't you just preach one? Because you never get to two and three. So one point with a couple of quick references to a couple of other points. What does Jesus begin, what does Peter begin to come to terms with? Well, in the first place, he begins to come to terms with Jesus' authority. He begins to come to terms with Jesus' authority. The other two points that we'll continue to see as we continue to walk through this story of Peter's life, we'll see that he continues to come to terms with Jesus' person. That's already underway. That's begun. It's reflected in this passage. And we'll also see that Peter has to come to terms with Jesus' mission. And that's reflected in the passage, I'll make you, have been catching fish, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But where this thing starts, where Peter really has to come to terms with Jesus first, is with Jesus' authority. And here's the scene, we've already alluded to it a bit, you see it in verse 1, 
The ministry of Jesus is expanding. It's exploding. The word is out. If you read through the previous chapter, chapter 4, there's a sequence of things that flows very neatly and nicely into chapter 5. And the sequence is this. As Jesus begins his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he goes to church. He goes to his home church. He goes to his home synagogue, the place where people gathered together just like this to do just what we're doing, reading a passage of scripture, having the rabbi stand in the midst of the people. Actually, he sat. They stood to read and sat to preach. That'd be easy for me easier than this. We stand. But Jesus would sit in the synagogue and he would expound or expand or enlarge upon the passage that had been read. That's what a rabbi would do. And that's what Jesus did. And that's where his ministry started. And Jesus took the scroll from the keeper of the scroll in the synagogue and he unfurled it and he found this particular place. It's Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, we read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set free those who are bound, and to proclaim release to the captives. Wow! Just to hit the pause button there and ask this question. Doesn't that sound wonderful? To be free? To be released? Everybody's got bondages. Everybody's got stuff that ties them up. And here's Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's commissioned me, sent me, anointed me to preach this good news, to set free those who are bound, to proclaim release to the captives. And then he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He points to himself and he says, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And then as you read through Luke chapter 4, the very next thing that he does is release from spiritual captivity a demon-possessed man, a man who's bound. Jesus does it, reads the passage, I'm the fulfillment of the passage, To prove that I'm the fulfillment of the passage, he sets free one who is bound. Folks, I can't say this enough. I need to be reminded of it. I can't say it often enough. To know Jesus means to be set free. It means to be free. And so the word then is out. The word gets around and you come then to chapter 5 And Jesus is standing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He's on the shore and the crowds are so big, they're pressing in upon him. And in order to be able to teach them as they press in upon him, he commandeers a boat, Peter's boat, Simon's boat, and he asks Peter to row him out a bit from the shore. So Peter's in the boat. From later in the text, we can see that there are other folks in the boat too who row him. It must be a fairly sizable boat. But Jesus is in the boat. Matthew Henry makes this great comment that Peter lends Jesus his boat in order that his boat might become a pulpit so that Jesus might teach the people, preach to these crowds that are on the shore. And then comes this decisive moment 
this rivetingly decisive moment for Peter. And it's not the only one like it. There will be more moments like this. Verse 4 says, When he had finished speaking, meaning, sermon over, 12 o'clock, time for lunch. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon. Now, don't you find that interesting? I'm struck by this. He said to Simon. What does Simon's name mean? One who hears with the intent to obey. Don't you find it striking that Jesus addresses Peter as Simon, one who hears with the intent to obey and gives him a command? All right? The testing has begun, isn't it? The testing has begun. Peter, Simon Peter, are you going to submit to my authority? You're going to listen to my word? You're going to hear my word? You're going to obey my word? So you hit the pause button. And we think a little bit. And we ask ourselves, what was going through Peter's mind at that moment? Simon, put your nets out into the deep for a catch. Put your nets out into the deep for a catch. Now, if you read the commentators, if you read some good, insightful guys who who write commentary on passages like this, if you've done this in the past or if you've heard a sermon on this passage before, you'll probably be aware that almost all of them observe the same things. They will tell you that from the vantage point of a professional fisherman, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. And it's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. Actually, a third, the one that Peter mentions in his response to Jesus. Master, we've been out all night and we haven't caught a thing. We're exhausted. That's reason number one. We're exhausted. But what's reason number two? It's the wrong time of day. You don't fish in broad daylight. You don't fish in the heat of the day. And here's reason number three. You don't fish in the deep. Where do the fish go in the heat of the day? They go deep. You throw down a net, they go deeper. They come up into the, into the shallows. I mean, I'm not a fisherman. There are a couple of several fishermen here. They'll, I'm sure, correct me after the sermon if I'm wrong about this. But fishermen go out, if not in the middle of the, the night, at least in the early morning, when the sun isn't exposing them to the fish beneath the surface of the water, and they go to places where the fish will feed and where nets can do their work. Peter's got to be thinking. I'm exhausted, he says that. Then he's got to be thinking this other thing. What do you know about my life? What do you know about my life? 
You're a carpenter's son. You know boards and planes and ways in this particular time to connect boards together. You're a carpenter's son. You're just, what do you know about fish? What do you know about my life? Well, as it turns out, Jesus happens to know quite a lot about Peter's life. In fact, Jesus happens to know quite a lot about a whole lot more than Peter thinks Jesus knows about. Master, we've toiled all night but it's your word. I'll do what you say. Folks, here is what Peter is coming to terms with. And here is what we want to try to come to terms with as we seek to come to terms with Jesus' authority. We need to come to terms with the fact that Jesus knows a whole lot more about Peter, about his circumstances, about a whole lot more than just fish and fishing than Peter up to this point has been willing to credit him with. Jesus, Jesus, folks, is clearly different from anybody Peter has encountered before. You can kind of hear, I, I think you can kind of hear rolling around in Peter's head that kind of thinking, that kind of coming to terms with Jesus. Okay, Lord, this is what it looks like to me. This is what makes sense to me. This is what my learning, my skills, my experience my lifetime growing up on the water, doing this particular kind of work. This is what all of this tells me. Every fiber of my being tells me that you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to my life. Does the shoe fit? Does the shoe fit? You don't know, Jesus. You don't know what it's like to be in this skin. You don't know what it's like to walk in these shoes. You don't know what it's like to have passed through the stuff that I've passed through, to get to the place where I am, to be in the place where I am. And then Peter does this remarkably heroic and significant thing in the face of everything that he knows and everything that every fiber of his being is saying to him, you don't know, you don't understand. He makes this incredible response, but at your word, I will let down my nets. I will do what you tell me to do because it is you 
and it is your word. I'll do it. Folks, um, I said to Barb last night, as we're standing in the kitchen talking about this sermon, I am so thankful to be working through the life of Peter for what I'm learning about me and for what I'm learning again about what it looks like to walk moment by moment, day by day with Jesus, who is real, who is there, who is not a figment of somebody's imagination or a character dreamed up in a bunch of stories. The reason we're here this morning is because we believe in our heart of hearts at some level we acknowledge that Jesus lived, died, and was raised again. That's why we worship on Sunday mornings, the first day of the week as opposed to the the last day of the week because this is resurrection day. This commemorates the coming back to life of Jesus. The daily newspaper attests to his life and death and resurrection. It's 2013. It's October 20th. How come? The how come is Jesus. And the Jesus who walked through the pages of the Gospels and who interacted with Peter on this particular occasion and through the rest of the days of his earthly ministry, the Jesus who is summoning Peter to embrace his person, to acknowledge who he is and to submit to his word, even though every fiber of my being says, this makes no sense, is the Jesus who is present with us this morning because he is alive and he is present by his spirit. And this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. This is what it looks like, thinking back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is what it looks like to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. It means that I stop listening to my own voice. I stop listening to every fiber of my being. I stop listening to the cacophony of voices that are out there shouting that I obey them and listen to them. There is one voice. And that is the voice of Jesus. And Peter begins to understand this. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. It means listening. It means believing. It means trusting. It means trusting that he sees what we don't see, that he knows what we don't know, that he has purposes and intentions which we cannot fathom. This is what it looks like to me, Jesus, but at your word, I'll let down my nets. I'll do what you say, even though it makes absolutely no sense to me, the professional fisherman. Now, we tend to have two problems if we can sort of work this out and try in some way to apply it personally. It seems to me that we have two problems as we do this. We tend to think comparatively and we tend to think selfishly. Or another way to think of it or to put it is that we tend to think in isolation. We tend to think just about me. We tend to think comparatively and we tend to think selfishly. 
Peter did this. If you go to the end of his life, he's still learning this lesson, which ought to be tremendously encouraging to us. You go to the end of his, not the end of his life, you go to the end of Jesus' life, three years after this episode, and Jesus and Peter is still learning this lesson. After the resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples back here at the Sea of Galilee. They've gone back to their fishing trade. And Jesus, after the resurrection, meets them. And he cooks breakfast for them on the beach. You can read it in John chapter 20. And it's there that Jesus reinstates Peter. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Three times Peter is asked by Jesus, do you love me? And what Jesus was doing was restoring him and reinstating him. And so here is Peter being restored by Jesus, being reinstated by Jesus. But then Jesus says this thing to Peter. He says, Peter, when you were young, like a rock, lean and solid everywhere, you went wherever you wanted to go. You did whatever you wanted to do. But the day is coming when you will be bound against your will and you'll be taken to a place you don't want to go. And what does Peter do? He thinks comparatively. He turns and looks at at John and says, well, what about John? What about John? And you know what Jesus says to him? Dude, this is not about John. This be about you. If I want John to remain until I return, that's my business. You follow me. Right? So we tend to think comparatively, but as Peter did, but Jesus thinks, and this is beautiful, friends, Jesus thinks personally and specifically. Jesus has a purpose for Peter. And it's Peter's purpose which Jesus has for Peter. It's his own plan, a specific plan for Peter. And it's not about John. And it's not about Andrew. And it's not about Thomas. And it becomes Peter's plan for Peter. Because Peter increasingly embraces what Jesus' intention and purpose is for him personally. See, I said last week in the beginning of that sermon, when you distill it down, when you reduce Christianity to its core thing, it's all about relationship. It is all about relationship. It is about being in relationship with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. It is about God, the infinite person, gathering me up into relationship with him, I, the finite person. He is very big. I am very small. He knows things I don't know. He sees things I don't see. And he forms and shapes and fashions particular purposes for particular people because he sees things I can't see and he knows things I don't know. I told Parva I was going to do the little dog and pony show on the knowledge of God again. And she said, oh, please don't. Don't use the chess illustration. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, see me afterwards and I'll tell you. The bottom line is that the God of heaven and earth, who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, all of the things that we talked about in that affirmation affirmation of faith, 
knows things I don't know, sees things I don't see, and he forms and shapes things because he has personal, specific purposes for individual people. It's me and Jesus in that sense, not me in comparison with somebody else. And here's the other thing. Understanding this personal thing, I can go to a bad place and I can think very self-ishly. I can think that it's really only about me. (laughs) And that's a problem for Peter too, isn't it? He's constantly thinking about his own hide, his own skin. But you see, Jesus doesn't think about people. This is really important, friends. Jesus doesn't think about individual people, though he has individual and specific purposes for individual people. He doesn't think of individual people disconnected from other people. And he doesn't think about individual people disconnected from his purposes for those other people. And beyond that, he doesn't think of individual people disconnected from his purposes for the whole of human history. And for the whole of his purpose to restore the cosmos so that it reflects his beauty and his glory. When Jesus thinks about Peter's life, he doesn't think about an individual strand set off by itself. He thinks about that strand woven into the fabric of his whole purpose for all of human history. And he knows that without that strand, that tapestry of beauty will lack the beauty which only Peter can bring to it. He thinks very specifically and personally about Peter. But he doesn't think about Peter in isolation. He thinks about Peter in connection with everything else. Think about it, folks. At this particular moment, would Peter have imagined preaching a sermon in which 3,000 people would be added to the church? Do you think at this moment, Peter had any idea that just three years hence, he, a humble fisherman, called into fellowship with Jesus, not because of who he was, but because of who Jesus was going to make him to be. Do you think he could have conceived at that moment that he would stand not in the bow of a boat, but he would stand in the midst of thousands of people and would tell people about Jesus and 3,000 people would be brought into the church? He didn't know it, but Jesus did. Do you think at that moment Peter had any idea that he would write a couple of letters that would be read by hundreds of millions of people? Many, many, many of whom would be walking through very dark and difficult times of suffering and that they would find incredible solace and comfort in these two little letters, eight chapters eight chapters from Peter, that they would find incredible comfort in what Peter would write. Do you think Peter saw that? Nah, but Jesus did. See, Jesus knew what he was doing with Peter. 
He was molding him. He was shaping him. He was forming him. And there were things that Jesus knew which Peter didn't know, things that Jesus could see that Peter couldn't see, and Jesus would be the great architect of all of that. And Peter, across the days of his life, must have been staggered and stunned. Do you think Peter could imagine or could have imagined that a hundred or so people in a place called Vero Beach, Florida, would be listening to a sermon about his life and hopefully by God's grace deriving some benefit from that sermon. See what I mean? Jesus knows stuff we don't know. He sees stuff we don't see. He knows our lives. He knows what he's doing with us. And he knows how the thread of our individual experience is woven together into the fabric, the tapestry of the whole of the beauty of his purpose for all of human history. And in any given moment, in any given moment, I can look at Jesus and I can say, this makes absolutely no sense to me. But because you are who you are and because it is your word, I will do it. I will do it. The two glancing blows here. The last two things that Peter comes to terms with over the course of the time of his life with Jesus. He's coming to terms with his authority, with his word, that Jesus knows things he doesn't know, sees things Peter doesn't see, and because he does, and because he's dealing with Peter personally, and he's dealing with Peter as a particular thread in the beautiful fabric of the tapestry of his purpose for all of human history, Peter begins to learn that if Jesus says it, that's enough. He begins to learn to submit to Jesus' word. But then he also begins to come to terms with Jesus' person, It's an interesting shift in language. When Peter speaks the first time, he calls Jesus master, which is a generic term for someone who is an overseer. After the miracle, Peter calls him Lord. Curios, not curious. Curios, a term that was applied to Caesar. Lord, not overseer but over ruler and governor of everything. And then, and then Peter begins to come to terms with Jesus' mission. And folks, here's the thing we're going to see as we continue to look at Peter's life. Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. You've been catching fish. You're going to catch men. But then there's verse 11. And they left everything and followed him. 
See, here's the thing that Peter's going to learn. Jesus doesn't want Peter for what Peter will do. Jesus wants Peter. You understand the difference? The mission of Jesus, my friends, for you and for me, doesn't begin with what Jesus will do through us. The mission of Jesus begins with what Jesus will do in us. He wants you. And not just a piece of you. Not just a part of you. He wants you. Lock, stock, and barrel. Boat, and nets, and fish, and everything else. And when he has you, you begin to get free. So what is Peter coming to terms with? Stuff that he will continue to come to terms with. The authority of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. We come to Jesus for lots of things. But when he comes to us, he wants us. Let's pray. God, please help me. Have mercy upon me and have mercy upon all of us that we might be content in the places where you have put us, the circumstances where we are, trusting that what seems utterly crazy and insane to us is perfectly known by you and is your weaving together of our individual lives into the fabric of the tapestry of your purpose for all of history. Help us to see it and believe it, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.